I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I think the last time I was here, I was interviewing Tayari Jones the night before the Women's Fiction Prize, and we all thought she'd win, and she did. So I have a high, very high expectation of your ability to predict everything in literary matters. <laughs> I seem to remember as well the questions that night were all very good, so no pressure. <laughs> but um, <laughs> It's extremely nice to be here with all of you tonight, and it's extremely nice to be here with you, Blake Morrison. You're a serial offender, you say at one point in this book, when it comes to memoir. Um, You've written a lot of books and you've written a lot of memoir. Would you tell us maybe just about where you first first came to memoir? Well, kind of by accident, really. I I had published a couple of books of poems. I'd written a study of some writers. Um, I was working on The Independent on Sunday... And then my father got ill and died, and I'd never thought of my father being a subject for a book. Um, you know, I'd spent all my life trying to escape my parents who wanted me to be a doctor. Um, so the idea of actually putting him in a book seemed strange, but that seemed the only way to do it, to a prose book rather than a long poem. And out it came, and I thought that was it. Um, and then my mother died. Um, <laughs> and someone said, well, you know, um, you've done one. And I didn't think I'd write about my mother, who was a, a, a bit of a mystery, the 19th of um, 20 children uh, in Ireland. Um, not a fact I knew uh, during her lifetime, but something I discovered after her death, along with a lot of other things. My father, a great hoarder, had kept these letters that she and he had exchanged. Their courtship, well, the courtship, the kind of thing you never know about as a child, was all there, sort of on paper. And... Various aspects of her story I wanted to tell. And then that really was it. I wasn't going to write another memoir. <laughs> uh, and my sister died three years ago. And I, in my diaries, that I only ever keep when I'm miserable. I don't know about you. Um, I had got quite a lot about Jill. And um, I'd also got diary entries about my half-sister who... I hadn't known was my half-sister for sure, though she'd been sort of almost made part of the family, but that she was my father's child was never acknowledged. But we'd done this DNA test eight months before she died, and um, there was a story there to write. So 
that's that's two sisters. It was just another one I had to do. Mm-hmm. You don't really choose these subjects. I find I don't know about you. They they choose you. Mm-hmm. And um, but that, that's it now. I'm done. No. <laughs> <laughs> won't be any more. I mean, it's true that the remaining members of my family are nervous, but uh, there won't be any more. Uh, it's almost like we kind of hope that remains true. Don't we? Like, hope none of them are going to give you material that's too good to resist. Um, no, and I think there's a sort of, I feel, something I say in the book, there's a kind of permission with death. Um, I, I, okay, it's true that there are people in these all three memoirs who are still living, but the more intimate stuff is about people who've, who have died. And it's, a, a, you know, you write, as you have done, to commemorate, to tell stories that you think are deserve, deserve to be told. But for me, that sort of comes later, during when someone has gone. Mm-hmm. Would you read a little bit for us? Yeah, well, I, I haven't done a reading before from this book, and uh, but Cathy told me which bit to read, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> it comes from near the beginning. Um, it's about my sister, Gillian. It describes uh, an episode when I was up in Yorkshire where she was living next door to my parents, uh, where she had come over to the house, to their house where her children and husband were, but she wouldn't go into the house. She would only go as far as the garage, and that's where I uh, came out from the house and met her. Jill has closed her eyes, shutting out the pain of light. For a moment, I see her as she looked in childhood, the same frizzy curls, the turned-up nose, the short, plump body. But the plumpness has moved down and outwards, leaving her with the same fine features and narrow waist, but with wide hips and that low centre of gravity certain footballers have, or like a space hopper, an inflatable, bouncy toy. What's happened, Jill, I say, suddenly stiff and cold and censorious. Don't you see you're killing yourself? I'm unhappy. Always have been. That won't ever change. It can, I say. It will. Anyway, it's not the drink that's the problem. It's them. And you. Me. They gave you everything and me nothing. You got out. I didn't. You've got a life. I haven't. You turn up here twice a year and then bugger off and never think about us the rest of the time. You can't stand them any more than I can. I've heard her say all this before, in my head, but it's shocking to hear it spoken out loud. Let me walk you back to the house and make some black coffee, I say. I'm fine, just leave me. It's cold. You go in then, or have a coffee here. I'm not going in. We wrangle like this, till I agree. All right then, I'll leave her and go inside if she gives me the gloves she has brought over for the children. But when she fishes them from her coat, there are only three. She fumbles some more, plumbing the shallows of her pocket, as if it were a huge wardrobe in which the glove must be hidden somewhere, and keeping at it for an absurdly long time, before conceding, shamefaced, that she must have dropped the missing glove on the way over. I'll help you look, I say. Okay, she says, suddenly meek. 
Retracing her steps, we walked the fifty yards along the drive and through the wooden gate into her garden. There's no sign of the missing glove. By the time we reach her back door, she has recovered her angry composure. You wait here, she says, leaving me on the step, pointedly barring me from entry. I gaze through the window into the eerily tidy kitchen and playroom. Not an alcoholic's house at all, no hint of anyone falling apart, though I know from a husband Wynne and from mum and dad that two small children sometimes run free for hours while their mum lies half comatose in a chair. How are you doing, Jill? I shout through the door. Won't be a minute, she shouts back, though it has been several already and will be several more. She did leave me waiting there a long time and I thought, yeah, she's finding one of her wine boxes for a bit of a top-up. This is happening about 10 or 11 in the morning. So it is partly a book about somebody's addiction and I feel sort of awkward reading a passage like that because that's showing her when she's really on one of her binges and not in a good state and got a lot of anger against the family. But there are other episodes where she's not like this and you know it's it, a book is a is a search really to find why our lives which began close together um went wide apart and why she ended up as she did not only addicted to alcohol but but blind by the end of her life uh, you know we were i said my mum was from ireland as your dad is mm-hmm. and had, was part of this large family and two of her siblings were born 10 months apart which is what they call Irish twins and um, Jill and I were sort of Irish twins but, but it was a bit wider we were 16 months apart but we had the same childhood you know and we were we brought up in the same way very close did the same things and yet children two children given the same upbringing can can go off in such different directions and maybe there's nothing surprising about that but to me it it still seems strange and I wanted to try and understand that. Mm-hmm. So you say this a book can be a search and this book is a search. I felt felt that the as with all your memoir the tone is very intimate. It's a very nice book to read because you do feel as the reader that I feel that the the book has been written for me. <laughs> My, you know that your journey, you're sort of sharing it and your thought process. And I just wondered, is that something? I'm not giving that you everything. I'm not giving <laughs> myself away completely. But yeah. well, that's the slight of how, that's the memoirist art. I always say when I'm teaching, you don't have to tell the whole story. You just need the reader to think that you are telling the whole story. That's kind of how it works, isn't it? And I just wondered if that intimacy of tone is something that you have to intentionally do, or whether it kind of does has become. Natural. I think it has become natural. It's the voice I've used for a family of memoirs. And although I think of the three books as very different, one's about losing my dad, one's about discovering things about my mum after her death, and the, the, other, the third one's about searching for why Jill became the person she did. But the tone is probably the same through them. And, you know, it's weird, I think... My first book of poems was called Dark Glasses, and one reviewer said, probably rather meanly, you can't see his eyes. And um, and I felt 
the, the, the memoir allowed me a more intimate voice than I'd had in the poems. You've also written poems about Jill, mm. Skin and Blister. And again, reading them, I was very interested in how the content's the same, but the form feels so different and the tone feels so different. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, they're, they're, <clears throat> maybe it's the formality of them. There are 20 sonnets and one sestina. And, you know, I'd finished the book about, finished the memoir, and I thought, you know, that's it, as I often think. <laughs> that's it. No more. And uh, then I found myself over a summer period of the summer, must have been, yeah, 18 months ago, um, writing quite quickly quite a lot of poems and then revising them over the next year mm-hmm. or so. Um, and it's, they're addressed to my, to Jill, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, maybe that's what, what's different about the tone. I'm, I'm talking to her and it's still the same idea of, you know, explain yourself. Um, but the, that's maybe why the tone is different, mm-hmm. the direct address. There was a specific, this feels actually now a bit, obviously I'm interviewing you about the book, but this almost feels a bit too personal, but I'll do it anyway. For some reason, I feel this is a transgressive thing to act. ask. I only, it, I didn't, it was in the poems where you said, you talked about the alcohol and you said kind of like, I'm a boozer too. And I didn't have any sense of that in the moment. And I'm, I, I haven't got a glass of wine in run yeah, to the moment. I, mean, I haven't <laughs> drunk for five years. So I've got, I've, you know, had more you than were my a share. Boozer, you I was, were, I was I mean, a massive boozer. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I've got a radar for it. Um, but I thought it was interesting the way that immediately as soon as I started reading the poems, it was, it was there, this thing, the whole thing that this, Alcohol is a family affair, whereas in yeah. the memoir it felt a bit different. Really, yeah. Um, maybe that's true. I hadn't thought about it. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not... When Jill was on one of her binges, she needed alcohol, it seemed, 24 hours a day. And mostly to just knock herself out and to sleep, it seemed. Um, uh, you know, I, I like a drink of an evening, as many people do. And we were, we were a family that growing up in rural Yorkshire where half our entertainment was going to the pub. The kids out left outside with uh, orange aid and crisps and the parents in, indoors. Well, you know about family pubs. That's in your book. But so it, it was, you know, there was alcohol in the family, but. Only like it's in many, many families. But no, that wasn't a confession that I too am an, al- an, um, an alcoholic, Jill. <laughs> and I'm sorry I've written the book about your alcoholism. <laughs> no, um, I'm not. Um, I'm not accusing you of anything. No. I just found it was. It just felt very. I suppose it's all in that, isn't it? That the memoir is written probably for other people to explain or to search, I guess, for Jill. Whereas the poems do. They, they maybe just have that like slightly bar-like quality. That, Intimacy of the siblings, maybe. Maybe. Um, I mean, what you hope, I mean, you must have been the same for you, is that you write a memoir and it may be intimate and it may may be about your family, but people make connections. So I think of mine as an ordinary dysfunctional family. You know, (laughs) it was, you know, um, on one level, well-to-do, successful parents were GPs, um, and on another level, there's an unacknowledged child that my father, I'm sure, knew was his, but uh, I speculate in the book, in the chapter about exactly how they dealt with this this child who was nine years younger than me, um, who exactly knew what. Mm-hmm. My mother delivered the child, 
which is quite an idea, my mother delivering the child of her father's lover, and there was other sort of dysfunction. But it's an ordinary family story. <laughs> um, and you hope that people will will connect with that, even if you know they've not had a an alcoholic as Jill was. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this thing of you write about the ethics of writing about real people and yeah. a, a line I particularly liked, which where you said you can't write an honest memoir while the subject is alive. And then another, there's another line somewhere about life writing, as you say, as so often with life writing, the trigger is death. Because mm. uh, you teach memoir, don't you, as well as read it and write it. I mean, I think I probably, I, I think I agree with you, as in I think it's, I feel that almost memoir is at its... The, the memoir, of, so the life writing form for me does seem to work really well when someone has died. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a sneaky thing that they're, now they're dead you can write <laughs> bad things about them, is it? But it's, it's probably, well, it certainly was the case for you too, you know, you're coming to terms with loss and grief, and that's one of the motives for writing, working something out. The ethics of doing it, yeah, um... I think it's changed quite a lot since my book about my dad, which was 30 years ago. I think the rights of the individual being, or individuals being written about, that, that's been ad- addressed much more than it was back then. And, you know, you're always likely to be asked, have you been asked this? You know, what, what gives you the right to, to tell this story? This is other people's stories too. To which, what do you say? Well, let, let them write their stories. This is my story. This is my, this is my set of memories. I'm not discounting yours, but this is my version. So, I, you know, I would affirm that right to, to tell it as it is and to be as honest as you can. We were talking before we came in. We haven't met till tonight about to what degree any fictionalising is allowable in memoir. And I, I think we're both a bit old-fashioned that we... We don't allow ourselves lives. Mm. I mean, I can own, I'll own up to changing this, a setting in, in one trivial episode. And I've changed names. The, my father's lover and the child uh, and her, as it were, the father who brought her up rather than a birth father. I changed their names. I didn't see any point in, in them being embarrassed or exposed. Uh, I changed the name of... A housekeeper with whom there were carryings on, with, <laughs> which with me, four years younger than her, that um, were not part of a contract. Um, and she complained, Why couldn't I be me? She said, Why, <laughs> why did you change my name? Um, uh, so there are, there, are, there, there are those, I don't know, I wouldn't call those lies, those are the sort of compromises or fabrications that you have to deal with in life writing mm-hmm. of changing yeah changing people's names and identities a bit i think there's a thing about collateral damage of other people isn't there so yeah. i always feel that if i want to write a memoir and the fact that other people are in it on the periphery i mean they have their right to be respected so i'm always and also i think the the reasonable reader doesn't doesn't expect doesn't expect actually almost nor want you nor want their writer to be the sort of person that 
sort of just merrily tramps all over everyone else in their life when it's the centrality of the, you know, when the central story is mm. the important thing. It's interesting because I think that people are being much more experimental with memoir too than they were 30 years ago. And there's autofiction, and we don't know with autofiction how much is autobiography and how much is fictionalised. Mm-hmm. And I, can't, I think I couldn't write autofiction. I think I feel this contract with the reader... I'm going to be as honest as possible and as truthful as possible, and uh, I want that position of trust. Having said which, you know, I love some of the practitioners of autofiction. I just don't think I could do it myself. I, I think you'd call Knausgaard and Rachel Cusk, for instance. You'd call them writers of autofiction, and I like their books immensely, but I don't think I, it's for me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One of the other very satisfying and interesting things about re- reading the book, along with everything else, is that you do what you describe at one point as a literature review on books about sisters. Mm. And you immediately discover some very interesting things because you're expecting to... Um, I, did, I liked the general portrait of you through the book as someone who, something happens in my life, let me go to my bookshelf and <laughs> consult it. <laughs> this, is how, this is how I process the world. Let me find something on my shelves that's going to help. So you go looking for books written by men about their sisters, and yeah. what do you find? Not much. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, not as much as I hoped for. And, you know, I was thinking, I was hoping for insights and uh, stories that would connect with mine and... You know, there, were, there seemed to be lots of sisters writing about sisters, sisters writing about brothers, brothers writing about brothers, and and that, you know, and I'm sure people in the audience will can correct me, but there seemed very little of brothers writing about sisters, and a lot of sisters in the background, whether it's Dorothy Wordsworth, or whether it's Caroline Herschel, the astronomer's uh, sister, and not being acknowledged for their their own part and their own achievement. But, yeah, I turned up some interesting things. I mean, it seems to me, for instance, that Kafka's Metamorphosis is a book about a brother and a sister more than anything else. Um, you remember, yeah, he, he turns into the giant, the giant insect, but it's a sister who's, who's kind to him and looks after him and uh, does all she can to help until there's an episode where she's playing the piano, they've taken in lodgers, he appears, they're all horrified, and at that point she sort of says, that's it, you know, I can't, I can't cope anymore, uh, which is the trigger for his, his own death, at which point she kind of blossoms. It's her metamor- metamorphosis. But Kafka in that, that story is, is, is quite good on brothers and sisters, I think. Um, but, yeah, I didn't find a huge amount. And quite a lot of what there is was incest as well. Wasn't well it? Yeah. I don't know why I'm sniggering. Like, but I mean, I'm just sniggering because obviously I feel embarrassed. But I thought it was very interesting again that you and I was because uh, two days before I'd been talking to a writer friend about about well, just you know, like the brothers always being more important kind of thing. And um, and then I was reading this. I kept taking photos of her and sent texting them like and another one. <laughs> Men only write about their sisters if they're shagging them. I was saying. <laughs> So, but, which I was very kind of surprised to find. But once again, once the literature review was laid out for me, probably not very surprised. And do, is it? I mean, is it just boys well, are good, more important than girls? Like, is that traditionally uh, yeah, that's lot, how it is? And a lot of it was to do with that. And as far as the incest goes, I think it was 
I think it's Shelley who says something like, you know, it's it's just one of those great transgressive themes for a writer to explore. <laughs> and more more male writers seem to have done it than female, though there are examples of women writing about incest too. Not necessarily autobiographically, we should say. We're looking at fiction and plays and other stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You write about how psychoanalytic theory, again, would assume that you were aghast when Jill was born and it, you know, sort of ruined your life. And I, one of the things I did find when I wrote a book about my brother, or actually even talked about him, this is very, somehow everybody has taken in this thing that, like, you know, oh, well, of course, someone once told me all siblings subconsciously desire the death of the other sibling. And that's why I feel bad about the fact that my brother died, and I really don't think it is. Like, I really don't think I desired, I subconsciously desired his death, like, at all. I we go as far as to say, like, isn't that just nonsense? Um, I find it odd. One of the things I only realised after I wrote my book is that even the category on Amazon is siblings and sibling rivalry. <coughs> like, you can't have one without the other. I found it very <laughs> odd. Um, I know, obviously, not all siblings go on, but this... Again, we seem, there just seems to be this mass acceptance of some kind of trouble at mill if it's mm. to be discussed. Yeah, I mean, the, you're always supposed to be feel dislodged, aren't you, as a small child by the arrival of a baby. And I did find these photos my dad had taken of me climbing into the pram, which had been mine probably just a few months before, and shaking the pram and my sisters in it. But it wasn't sort of real bullying mm. going on. I like to say I didn't bully her very much. Um, it's not as, it's not, I mean, there's a lot of guilt in my book because there's a lot of guilt in your book. And it's just the guilt of somebody going and you fail to keep them alive, mm. isn't it? As more than anything else, mm. rather than specific things you did. But it isn't a book where I'm, I'm owning up to lots of mistreating my sister. But I think I was privileged. I think as the male in the family, there were just the two of us, the half the secret half sister, and I was a bit older and uh, I had more luck maybe. But I was certainly made to feel the more important of the two, not just by my parents. The whole culture boys were the privileged ones mm-hmm. compared with girls. And in the search for reasons, because there's sort of a few searches in the book is that fair to say there's a search to understand Jill's unhappiness which maybe is even slightly separate from the search to understand Jill's addiction yeah I mean I think one of the key things for me was you remember the 11 plus some people in the audience are old enough to remember the 11 plus I did it a year before Jill I passed it I went to the grammar school there was a slight change in the teaching at our tiny school. There were, it was a village school where sometimes there were as few as 14 kids in the whole school. And it was shocking in our year because three of us took the 11 plus and two of us passed and the other boy failed. And we were the same. I mean, we didn't understand. My sister failed the 11 plus and my parents didn't like the secondary modern down the road. Um, where a lot of their patients' kids went, and they thought they could afford to send her to boarding school. So off she went to the Lake District, where she was very unhappy indeed, and eventually wrote a letter of such unhappiness that my dad just walked out of morning surgery and drove up and took her out of school midway through the school year. And I think she felt rejected. I think she felt 
rejected by the family because I was allowed to stay <laughs> at home and she was sent away. And so I think that some of the resentment that comes out in that little bit I, I read, you know, that would be in, that would certainly be a factor in that. Mm-hmm. You say, you ask yourself a question at one point, you say, why am I drawn to sad stories? <laughs> And I was kind of like, oh, I'm looking forward to the answer to this. And I don't think you give one in the book. Do you have, do you, I mean, I mean I, you know, I'm an easygoing, very happy person. Really, <laughs> but, but, but sadness and death and misery are definitely my subject matter. You know, whether it's Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, whether it's the Bulger case, the death of people I love. I mean, it's horrible, but these are the things that seem to get me going. You know, adversity is a necessary subject matter in in all forms of literature, isn't it? Challenge and difficulty and adversity. So I haven't answered the question, but they, <laughs> they really, but um, it's, not, it's not that I'm melancholic and I go around looking for sad stories, but they're the ones that affect me somehow. Mm-hmm. I remember once being at a festival and having a disagreement about a book with someone in the green room, and I said, I don't think it is about that. I said, I think, I mean, really, it's just about death. And Anne Enright was in the corner and said in her brilliant voice, which I won't try to imitate, like, are there any other subjects? <laughs> <laughs> and see, that did calm me down after that. I thought maybe I'll just accept that it is my subject. I think there's something about an upfront of being close to death as well that actually conversely feels more, like you do see life more clearly, I think, near to death. Mm. Um, but, you, I mean, I've, you had the terrible death to deal with your brother at far too young and... You know, my parents had a full span and my sister didn't die till she was in her 60s. And I think the experience was different each time. My, my, with my dad, I was, he, even though he was 75, I was just totally unprepared, as if I somehow thought he would go on forever. And it was like a little boy losing his dad, really. And then my mother, I, which was five years later, I got, you know, I'd had more time to get used to the idea she might go. And with Gillian... You know, we all said, Jill, you'll kill yourself if you carry on drinking like this. And yet, you know, she kept surviving mishaps of one kind or another, and you just thought she'll outlive us all. And I think the grief for her is it's it's a different kind of grief. Yours is an incredibly intense grief. You loved your brother. You never had... You might still have loved him if he were here now, but Jill and I went through our decades... And although we never f- f- fell out, we, you know, we, we lived in different parts of the country, but we kept in touch, stayed close, but we wasn't an intense bond like, like you had with your brother. Mm. Never was, perhaps, and it certainly became less of one over the, over the years. Tell us a bit about how, and the decision to write about Josie at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I suppose also related, it's not even really a question, I felt that there's... Um, the more I am alive and the more I write books and the more I read books, the more I'm taking a really deep and long-range satisfaction in reading an author's work. So as you said, we met in, in life for the first time tonight and I probably read your book, what, like 25 years ago. Mm. And then reading this one, I felt I was reconnecting with that earlier book. Like there are things that become clearer, aren't they? And, um, yeah. Because there are suspicions in the earlier book book i think aren't there and then you find things out yeah i mean uh, there, are, there are two things i want to come back on but just to, to deal with with josie first of all i always thought she was my half sister from quite from the minute i kind of knew about sex i, I thought 
And I asked my dad when he was alive and he changed the subject. I asked his lover. um, She denied it. And uh, I asked my mum and she not got a clue, she said. Um, And I felt impertinent. It wasn't my... I had no right to ask these these questions, really. And then 10 years after the book about my dad came out, Josie, which I'll continue to call her that, phoned and said, that's me, isn't it? You called me Josie, but I recognise that's me. I've always thought your dad was my dad. She said, can we do a DNA test? And we did in separate parts of the country. Stick a pill in your mouth, goes off for analysis. They write back a few weeks later and say, sorry for the delay, we think it's five times more likely than not that you're related, but that's a very partial test, we want to do another one. And then it came back that it was 15 times more likely than not that we were siblings. Mm -hmm. And we talked on the phone afterwards, and we both said, well, it's just confirmed what we always know. I wouldn't say it was no big deal, but it wasn't life-changing, except I thought, great, I've got another, another relation in my life. And I don't want to tell this whole story now, but, I mean... There were one or two things I missed in those phone calls about her, a certain instability she had, and then it was compounded when she phoned me up before Christmas. This is like six, seven months after the DNA test and said, you know, that she thought her husband was in love with somebody else and she didn't know how she was going to cope. And in the early January, early one morning, got the kids off to school, their first day back at school, she drove to a nearby hotel, checked in, and she was diabetic and had an insulin pump. And I never found the actual... Uh, I, I didn't see anything in the papers, but whatever, but it was confirming suicide, but it was clearly... And friends of hers later told me there'd been one or two accidents or suspicious things happening with that insulin mm-hmm. pump in the months before Christmas. Now, you know, the reason, another reason for me to feel guilt, as I do in this book, is whether that DNA test destabilized her and contributed to all that. Her husband said the opposite, that it actually something she'd always known, it, it suspected, it confirmed her, she'd seem more settled. I'll never know, but it seemed to be to do with losing him and feeling worthless. Um, that made her take her own life. And, uh, yeah, I felt it was... I wanted to tell that story and just the whole story of un, uh, unacknowledged births and the shame around that, if they call it shame, or the, the conspiracy around not telling anybody that this was my dad's child. It, yeah, it just seemed an important story to tell. And the relationship between your mum and BT? Close, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they were both Catholics, although my mum was a very lapsed Catholic. BT had been a nurse for a while, my mum was a GP. They got on after my father died. She, Beta was my mum's closest friend. She came and stayed, and you know, um, it's extraordinary. It's the sort of stuff you can't make up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, they were really, really close. And BT, you know, wrote, wrote to me saying how much she loved my mum and, and so on. An ordinary dysfunctional dysfunctional family. family. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to ask for questions in a moment. I'm going to ask you one more. It's odd, isn't it, this thing of writing memoirs and then interviewing people about writing memoirs. And I sometimes think, listening to you write, talk about your sisters who've died, and I kind of think, like, 
at no point since me uh, since we met earlier on tonight. I mean, I haven't said like I'm really sorry your sister's died. Because like, does it, do you ever feel that thing of? I mean, it's just odd, isn't it, when you make these things into books and then talk about them at things and people say, oh, congratulations, it's doing awfully well and pat you on the back. I mean, it's just strange. Do you yeah. find it strange? Are you used to it? Are you thinking, I wish this woman would show some kind of compassion rather than keep asking me why I chose to write poems one day and memoir the next? Like, I assumed you. I, 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 I assumed you were sorry for my loss, um, which isn't recent. Um, yeah, I mean... In the months after my father's death, I couldn't talk about him. I was just well up. I couldn't do it. I wrote the book and then I could talk about him. And now I feel, okay, you know, I've made the family in some sense public property because they're in books. But my mum read the book about my dad and said that was okay with her. The book about her was really predating my sister and me. It was was about a period before us, so there wasn't a consent issue. With this book, I had to show it to my sister's two children. I showed them a draft. They read relevant bits to their dad, and they had one or two suggestions and said, it's fine, you, you know, go ahead, it's the truth, was their attitude to it. You know, and, and I'm lucky in that respect that I hope I haven't distressed uh, lots of people, and because you do worry about that um, with a memoir. But I've done a reasonable amount of seeking permission and consent. I'm not squeaky clean in that respect because in the book about my dad, I used, I reproduced a letter that BT had written to me. It was a great letter where she, where I was saying, I really want to know about you and my dad. You know, it's always haunted me. You were there all our childhood. It's like a jigsaw I'm trying to solve. And she wrote back this letter and said, you know, please leave me one piece of the jigsaw. It's mine. She just, she was absolutely right. I, it was her right. I'd had no right to know. So, you know, I suppose ethically I, I shouldn't reproduce that letter. Um, but in other respects, I think a memoir writer now has to, has to be a bit conscious of, of this. Some people feel really strongly you've got to show it to everybody, kind of mentioned in the book, and get written consent and so mm-hmm. on. And that seems to me over the top. But... Unless you're on some vengeful mission, you don't care what people think, and, and I'm not on a vengeful mission, I have no scores to settle, you want the people in the book to be okay with it or the people affected by the book to be okay with it. I quite like my friend Colin Grant has written quite a lot about his family, and I think he has six surviving siblings, and he's written a book about the sibling that died, and he's written about their parents, and the parents are from Jamaica. And when his siblings, he says when his siblings complain about anything in the book, he tells them this Jamaican proverb, which is that there are no facts, there are only versions. And then he says to them, anyway, you want a different version, you go off and write your own. Yeah, well, exactly. And then, and then there's a line that American writers use about, you know, well, if people complain about how you've written about them, they should have behaved better in life. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Who would like to ask a question? Someone lovely. Special place in heaven, I like to say, for the person who asks the first question at a literary event. Yes, Dr. Mary Black. You know Dr. Mary Black I'm, too, so do I. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, first of all, thank you very much. Um, I'm thinking net curtains all the time these days about, you know, we used to twitch net curtains and then memoirs writing about how dirty or afraid they were or who was behind it. But <laughs> I'm wondering on this issue of permission, are you simply able to write memoir after someone dies because you can proceed unimpeded? Well, I don't think you can proceed unimpeded. You can answer this question too. I don't think you can proceed unimpeded because there are, you know, the, the questions about how much to reveal about that person and what you reveal, but there are, there are other people connected to them. So there's still impediments. There's still stuff you've got to consider. I mean, you can be brutal and say, I don't care, it's my book, I'm not consulting anybody. I, I couldn't do that. Um, or you could go to the other extreme and have everybody give you written consent forms. What do you think? Yeah, I, don't think I don't think you can quite proceed <coughs> unimpeded, but I also don't think, I think it's easy to get bogged down in things like consent forms, but to a certain extent, they don't really matter. I think. I think what's going on with, death and I don't necessarily meet like my first book which is about my brother which was an accident and massive and huge and terrible I don't really almost mean that but I think now that I think about my dad a lot I quite like to write about him luckily he's still with us uh there was a time a couple of years ago when he thought he was dying so we had like the deathbed conversation yeah. and then he wasn't dying which was great because it's great to have the deathbed we said you know he said what he wanted to say and then didn't die and I do sometimes feel I'm slightly sitting around waiting for him <laughs> and we get quite a lot of laugh out of that you know we get a lot he thinks that's funny um but there is I think it's something to do with the fact that death is maybe the clarifier which I think you probably experienced so sharply with that first book about your dad that it's, I wonder whether it's almost like it's only, it only becomes possible for a certain type of book, that it comes out of the clarity, the terrible clarity, really, that you might get from the death of a parent. Mm. Yeah. And you're dealing with your loss. I mean, you write a lot in your book about your brother, about your feelings. Yeah. And I don't um, think, I think that the, eth- I, I still think with the ethical stuff, and of course, then if you get published, you get a legal read, there's that side of it. But I still think there's just a, be a decent human being who's not on a revenge mission and you probably won't go that far wrong. When, I, I, when I'm teaching people, I say, tell them to imagine they're a horse <laughs> with blinkers but, and that they're not seeing everyone else's perspective. They're yeah. seeing their perspective. And I say, know that that's your perspective and then own that perspective. It'll also save you from telling lots of boring things <laughs> that aren't interesting or important. But that's, you just got to tell your perspective rather than, I'm, I'm never aiming, I'm never claiming or aiming for an objective. No, I say the same to my, you get, get the, get that, per, stop that person looking over your shoulder. This is, you, you just get on and write yeah. it. It's the same thing as the blinkers. Mm-hmm. Get a draft done. And then if it's going into the public domain, then you might consider what you've written, whether you'd be happy for it to go into the public domain, how people are going to be affected. But you want that. You want to write in an 
without censorship or self-censorship, don't you? You don't want someone peering over your shoulder and inhibiting you. You want to tell if you're telling the truth. Yeah, and I think if it's worth doing, then it is worth doing as honestly as you can. And I certainly think that's the most important thing. And more important even than publication. Like, if then it can't be published, like, who cares? You've still done the important thing of writing the thing that you wanted to write about the thing that happened. Yeah. Very interesting question. Thank you very much, Dr. Mary Black. Did you find that writing it made you think differently about things than you did before? And if so, how did that reflection then play? And like, if you wrote it again, do you think you would come to different conclusions about the thing? And how, if so, how do you handle the change in thought that the writing and publication creates? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, I think with all three books, but particularly with this one, it's been a process of discovery and about finding out about somebody you thought you knew, but you're finding out more about them in the process of writing. I don't know about you, but I, I could never sit down to write something I already knew the answer to. <laughs> I'm looking for answers. That's why I'm writing. But things change. I mean, if my father, in the book about my father, I think he comes over as quite a engaging, charismatic, larger-than-life figure. You know, people feel affection to him. The book about my sister, there was already, you already saw a bit more in the book about my mother, how he could be quite controlling. And there's a piece, in, there's a little episode in the book about my sister where she has uh, been sent home from, or gone home from London having lost a job, being sacked from a job, and possibly been stealing things from the tenants that she's been living with. And my dad locks her in the cellar for an unspecified period. I was told 36 hours, and I think maybe it was two hours, but who knows. Yeah, a shocking, a shocking uh, piece of behaviour. So those sort of things change. I mean, I must have known that when I wrote the book about him, but it didn't seem to belong there. It certainly belonged in this one. So your perception, even of these people that you knew well, does change, I think, over time and in the writing. I'm not sure that's totally answered your question. but uh. Thank you. And then I think there was someone... But yes, if we could go over there. And then I think... Was there someone over here as well? Yeah. Yeah, OK, then I'll come down this end. <clears throat> Can you tell us how it feels different to write a memoir compared to the other things you write? Like how it the process is different and how you think about it is different as a piece of writing. How does memoir feel different to the other? Well, in a way, I think, is it the stuff that matters most because it's your life and it's the people that were important to you, particularly in the early part of your life? And so it must matter more than the novels where you've made stuff up. Uh, my novels are always making stuff up, not based on real life. Um, and it's... Te- it's you know, it's moving your heart as well as your mind, I suppose. And I think the voice is different. I mean, I'm not sure I can totally answer the question, but it they are they do feel separate, certainly from the fiction or from plays I adapted when I was working with Northern Broadsides. It's a different kind of discourse to to, to that, That's and it seems to it seems to interest people more than the novels did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we go to the lady with the brilliant red and black scarf? Hi, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the very beginning, you mentioned that um, this was a sort of exploration into the, you and your, your sister, very close in ages, and how 
siblings that are so close can diverge so much. And I'm just wondering, having written the book, do you feel closer to her now having explored all that? Is there some resolution of some of those distance or some connection that you maybe didn't have when she was alive? So kind of resolution from having written the book and great, or certainly greater connection. Yeah, I think I do feel closer. I think there was a period when when she was drinking heavily, when her kids were small, and so I, in, in different circumstances you could imagine the kids even being taken into care or at risk of that. When my parents had retired and could have done with having a bit of peace but she was living right next door and they were desperately worried about her and things were very difficult for everybody around her well I suppose I was angry and uncompassionate and saw addiction as a failure of will not as an illness and I think that anger is gone in writing the book and thinking about all the things that led her to be self-destructive if you like and I feel closer to her in that respect my one of her strange later friendships was with, was with my first real girlfriend, who'd been my girlfriend for about six weeks when she went to Australia. I don't think they're connected, but um, <laughs> that she had to, to clear off to the other part of the world. But she became really friendly with my sister, and my sister apparently said to her, I wonder if Blake will write a book about me. I hope he does. Now, that was permission. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know whether she'd like it. But no, I, do, I think it's a good question and I probably do feel closer to her, yeah. Thank you. And can we come there? I was say they say a problem shared is problem halved, so maybe the fact that you've written it all down is why you feel so content. That's yeah. why people take journals, isn't it, I think, as part of their self-care. Um, um, sounds like you had a lot of consent from your family. How would you recommend writing a memoir for people that have got siblings who might try and rewrite history? I mean, you've touched on different versions of events or my truth, but you wouldn't want it to get litigious, would you? I mean, you can turn it into fiction or you can change names. But yeah, a death can bring... So I lost my father two years ago and you get people trying to delete things or trying to rehash things and you've got in-laws then, you know, your brother's wives or what have you. Might be money orientated. Just plucking some examples out of the air, <laughs> yeah. so there just might be some history that's rewritten <laughs> or attempted to be rewritten. So it becomes quite tricky then to write a memoir, doesn't it? Because you don't want to break any hearts or get sued. <laughs> Do you have any tips around that? Just out of interest. Um, well, you, Kathy, <laughs> might have tips. <laughs> you just. You have to write a draft that is your story, unaffected by consideration of others. If there are things that you really want to say and the stories you really want to tell, you, at that point you can't be thinking about them, is my view. I, I also have a friend who, ironically, her mum, um, she has a sister, there's three of them in their family, and they say that threes apparently are the most likely to have problems in all like a, when there's a death or a will or something, mm. apparently she's Australian. And her sister doesn't want her two daughters to have the, their grandma's piano. I mean, why would you not want your... That's what the, her mum wanted. So why... Do you know what I mean? And it's, this is on, there could be examples in every family. But well, there are. Death, it's just where it comes up. It's either comes to belongings or yeah, money just, or what have you, where yeah. people might try and influence or they have an agenda, right? Well, it's why it's an interesting subject, isn't it? Yeah, the death yeah. clarifies the mind, and then often then 
creates havoc in the wake of it. Um, I completely agree with Blake that there are very few books that don't exist because the problems of what to do about the real people in them couldn't be surmounted. But there are loads of books that don't exist because the author was freaked out by the real people and and didn't write it, didn't write it properly, wasn't writing it privately, told everyone they were going to write it before they started writing it. And then that went round the family and then mm. they fell out even before a book even existed, etc. <laughs> so you just have to write the first draft. And then the other thing as well is people are always surprised, I think, about the organic nature of the writing itself. Like you said, mm. you're not interested in writing a book where you already know everything at the beginning. Mm. You never know. People think they can't write a book while so-and-so is alive. They write it and they change their mind about what they think about so-and-so. And it becomes that they're really glad they healed their relationship with who they were referring to as like that bastard Mike, whilst Mike was still alive, rather than waiting for him to be dead so they could publish their book. So you kind of never know. Um, can we go to, let's come, let's come back here. We're hurtling out of time. Yeah, I was just going to say that, I mean, people feel a sense of ownership, don't they? And that's, that's what you're up against, you know. Uh, and, um, I mean, Kathy talks about it in her book, people say how badly her brother's death affected them. And she's thinking, you know, it's my brother. I'm the one who's got the right to... Anyway, yeah. ownership. Let's go over there. First of all, thanks for a really moving evening. Um, I thought it was really great when you said... I was quite astonished when you said that you that it wasn't for you to know when you asked your parents about your whether that was your half-sister. I was wondering, has there ever been, however, whilst you were writing, any sense of resentment? And how did you deal with it? Because um, 26 years ago, my father died quite tragically in a Cessna crash. And only four days later did I find out that I did have a half-sister half because he had been married before, you know, four years before he, he met my mum. And he never told us. And to this day, I'm really flabbergasted how my mum could kind of keep that mm. a secret. And I wonder, you know, some people say not saying something kind of becomes a ticking time bomb and becomes a lie as well. So I suppose lots of sub-questions, I wondered. Yeah. Yeah, resentment. I don't think I feel resentment. I mean, I have a long chapter about it when I think about all the motives of the people involved, assuming they all knew, including my father's lover's husband and how much he knew about it too. And I think of the times and illegitimacy, if you like, and... I think if there's a there's a very good book by by Sam Miller. I don't know if you've read it. Fathers about fathers yeah. about him being brought up in the Miller family when his father was somebody else, and he's just assimilated with the other two. And it's really interesting about that. So no, I can see that for you that would be heartbreaking, and for me, I've had a lot longer to think about it, and I don't feel resentment, and I understand why they behaved as they did. I think it was a mistake. Uh, I do think it was a mistake and everybody would have been better knowing, but there we are. That's what they decided. Thank you. Can we very quickly come back to this lady who we gave the microphone to and then whipped it away because I'd already promised it to someone else. Thank you. Hi. Um, I've I've read the book. I really enjoyed it. It seemed to me that, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that you wrote it sort of out of guilt, that you didn't really know your sister that that was quite interesting in itself because in families we think we know people and we don't really. And 
I wondered if that was true and if whether at the end of it you knew your sister better and whether you had any regrets about, you know, the fact that you hadn't got close, closer to her and more intimate with her and understood her better while she was yeah. alive. I think the answer is yes. I feel regret. I feel guilt. Um, you know, it seems astonishing that there's somebody growing up in a small village, in a small family, there's just the two of you close in age, and yet at some level I didn't really know her or get to her or understand her. And people have said to me, including that friend I mentioned, but Jill had such a great sense of humour. We always had such a laugh, and I don't have that memory of my sister at all as being fun, and I think her kids found her fun. Um, I remember the sadder things. So, so yeah, some guilt and some regret. Um, but I feel I understand her a bit better having written the book and talked to people and so on. Thank you. Yeah, I think there were conversations that might have been had and a bit more longer phone calls and longer conversations. And I'm not saying it would have saved her and she wouldn't have become an alcoholic, but it, it would, it might have helped in certain ways, especially when she was younger and you know, looking for love and talking, you know, we could have talked more about relationships. I think she would have done, but she was a bit, a bit hesitant about it, and I was a bit hesitant in return. And so, yeah, there are there are regrets in there. Thank you, thank you very much, everyone. Thank, yeah, thank you all of you, and thank you, Blake, thank you. for talking yeah. to us. And shall we? Yeah, thank Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.